0: Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ian Shin. Today on our podcast, we have Charlotte Brooks speaking about her new book, American Exodus Second Generation Chinese Americans in China, 1901 to 1949, published in 2019 by the University of California Press. Charlotte Brooks is professor of history at Baruch College in New York City. She is an expert on the 20th century United States, Asian America, and the Chinese diaspora. In addition to American Exodus, Charlotte Brooks has also written Between Mao and McCarthy, Chinese American Political Culture in the Cold War Years, as well as Alien Neighbors, Foreign Friends, Asian Americans, Housing, and the Transformation of Urban California. Professor Brooks's work has appeared in numerous journals, including the Journal of American History, the Journal of American Ethnic History, and the Journal of Urban History, and it has also been reprinted in the Best American History Essays. I hope that you enjoy our conversation today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Asian American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ian Shin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we're talking to Charlotte Brooks about her book, American Exodus, Second Generation Chinese Americans in China, 1901 to 1949. Charlotte is Professor of History at Baruch College, which is a part of the CUNY, or City University of New York, system. Charlotte, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Ian. Nice to talk to you.
0: Nice to talk to you as well. Charlotte, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Sure. Um, well, I'm from California. It seems like a long time ago that I last lived there, but I grew up mostly in Northern California. Um, not, I think, what most people associate with Northern California, Bay Area, but actually in the Gold Rush country, northeast of Sacramento. And I... Um, I went to college at Yale and uh, after college, where which is really the first time I think I, I ever encountered uh, any other history rather than U.S. history. I just didn't have that opportunity in, in high school. Uh, I took a lot of different history courses at Yale and just became really uh, intrigued by Chinese history. And after college, I, uh, I taught English in China at a very, uh, well, it wasn't small, but it was a not very prominent teachers' college in uh, central China near Wuhan, about two hours away from Wuhan. And after that, I, I worked in Hong Kong for about a year. And then I came back to the US to go to grad school in US history. So, uh, sort of a long, circuitous uh, journey to get to US history. But uh, in the end, I was sort of got some advice when I was thinking about grad school about. Uh, maybe looking into this field of Asian American history from a professor uh, who talked to me about, you know, studying at the university where he was teaching and I I decided against it, but I was sort of intrigued by Asian American history as a, as a growing field. And so that's how I ended up studying Asian American history at Northwestern. Although um, at the time there was no Asian American history
0: program. Yeah. I think one of the things that um, folks who are listening to this conversation might uh, be really excited about is you know to to hear your reflections on the kind of evolution of the field. I mean, this is your third monograph, and you know I, I imagine many of our listeners will be quite familiar with with your earlier work on Asian American suburbanization um, and on Chinese American politics during the Cold War. So as you sort of look back on you know how you got started in the field um, to now uh, you know doing doing the work that you do, how how do you think about the evolution? of Chinese American history or Asian American history, um, as a subfield in Asian American studies.
1: You know, it's, it's kind of interesting that I, I feel in a way, sometimes like a bit of a fossil because I, um, so when I started at Northwestern, there was nobody teaching Asian American history. And, um, I had initially, when I applied to graduate school, thought about studying the civil rights movement. And I ended up working, um, at Northwestern with Nancy McClain who's now at Duke. And her field, her major fields were women's history and African-American history, and, and they still are. And um, it was kind of interesting because I I think that my approach to Asian-American history was formed through this sort of unusual cohort where I was the only person doing Asian-American history among her dissertation students, but I was really influenced by my fellow graduate students and Nancy and, and some of the other people at Northwestern who were doing urban history. My grad student friends were all working in uh, urban history or african american history and those fields really they really influenced how i thought about approaching what i did but also coming from california where race looked different than it did in the midwest really influenced me as well and that really i think a lot of us you know we are usually our dissertation is our first book um as it was with me and a lot of what I was exploring at that time were these influences that I encountered in, um, at the, at a really exciting moment, um, in Asian American studies, even at Northwestern we didn't have a program when I started, but they, the spring before I started, there had been a student hunger strike for Asian American studies. And, um, you know, the, the late nineties were mid to late nineties really were a time when that happened at a number of campuses. So I, I was, Excited by the opportunity to participate in sort of what I thought was kind of a, a rebirth of a field that had you know gone through ups and downs since really its founding in the in the early seventies, um, but at the same time, you know my my methodology has always been much more grounded in influences from other fields of history and Asian American studies in the years since I really started has moved more in a cultural studies direction, which has been interesting to see. And I think is really fruitful, but I've sort of remained uh, very much influenced by social history, urban history, uh, African-American history, and the idea of, of trying to do what I do in a comparative way. And because I really started, you know, when I, when I was in college, I studied Chinese history. That was my, my focus. Um and so it's been kind of interesting to see the field curve back towards transnational and international perspectives. For me, that's kind of been a return to where I started because I I, you know, I started with China and now since the the second book about Chinese American politics was in a lot of ways as much a book about the relationship between the United States, the PRC, and the Republic of China in the Cold War. Um, and this one this third book is really a book. I don't know if I, I've had people have struggled to characterize it. You know, is it a book about China? Is it a book about U.S. history? We tend to put things in in sort of silos, but this one doesn't really fit. Um, but maybe that's where the field is going. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, but I, it's less, I think, influenced by cultural studies than by perhaps Republican China historical studies and at African-American studies. And
0: That's wonderful. Yeah. I And I, um, reflecting on what you're talking about in terms of your remaining grounded in, you know, sort of social history. Um, and, and one of the things that, that is kind of important to, um, as I understand a lot of your research is the ability to use, you know, sources in um, uh, Asian languages, uh, which uh, in this particular book is salient. Um, but but also in some of your earlier work, and one of the things that I think has um, become more of the norm in in even in Asian American history is you know being able to use um, for example Chinese or Japanese language sources and not just English language sources, uh, which not everyone can do. So I'm curious how you came to that. Uh, to is, was that something that you developed when you were that that language skill? Uh, was that something you developed while you were teaching in in China um, after Yale or uh, has that, is that sort of an ongoing practice for you?
1: You know, it's, it's interesting. It was sort of, I, the first time I took uh, Chinese language was my senior year in college. I knew at that point that I, I, I wanted to at least teach in, in China to to be able to visit China and work there for a while was my ambition. I didn't really know beyond that. I knew I definitely did not want to go to graduate school at that point, or I thought at all. Um, and so I knew I wanted to go to China and it was a little late uh, getting to uh, take care of the language part of that. So I took a year of language. Uh, I took a year of Chinese, my senior year of Yale. And I have to say that I've, it's going to sound insane. It's the classes were every day. It was intensive, 830 to, I think it was 830 to 1030 every morning. Um, and we were divided up by age group, um and i was one of the few seniors taking uh chinese i was they had us together with the graduate students a lot of people skipped a lot of the classes they slept through and i was i loved it so much that i was there every day so it was sort of sometimes like getting private tutoring in chinese um and you know that was the last time i formally studied in a classroom setting and the rest was kind of a mix of self-taught and when i was teaching english in china i um, I did study with students, but that always ended up devolving into English because they were trying to practice their English. So a lot of this has just been sort of uh, studying while I was working, studying um, when I, I, I worked for about two months in Beijing at the very end of my time uh, after Hong Kong, before I to the United States. And, um, and just, the, you know, sort of self-taught, but studying, especially uh, you know, trying to learn to read better. Um, and I feel like that's the one thing I've been able to keep up. I've continued working on that for, you know, since I returned to the United States and especially since graduate school. But I realized I was just in China over the summer and I've been a few times in recent years and my, uh, my Chinese speaking abilities are really deteriorated. And strangely, because so much of what I work on in terms of sources in Chinese uh, is stuff that was produced not just before the the, um, the the establishment of the People's Republic of China, but was created in um, either treaty ports or in Chinese-American communities. I'm uh, pretty able to read a version of Chinese that I sort of feel like doesn't exist <laughs> anywhere. Um, you know, sort of the, the language used in newspapers in the United States, which was falling out of favor in China, um, the language used in transitional moments. So it's a, it's a strange way to acquire a language, but I feel like sort of, I didn't anticipate that my life or career would take me to academia, but, um, the, the language learning that I sort of came back to during graduate school when I realized I wanted to do Asian American studies has been, um, such an important part of what I do. But, you know, not acquired in any sort of systematic or intentional way, um, but still very important.
0: That's that's wonderful, and I, it's actually quite—I have to say—inspirational. I think my my uh, parents would be quite thrilled to hear you say that to me um, in the context of this interview to inspire me to to do the same uh, to keep up with my with my Chinese. Um, maybe with that, we can um, pivot to talking. Um a little bit more about the book itself. Um and uh I wanna start by asking, and you 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 sort of cite this in, in the acknowledgments actually of how you came to write um American Exodus. So can you talk a little bit how the project came about?
1: Sure. It it was a little bit circuitous. I um it partly came out of my teaching and it partly came out of the research for the last book um, between Mao and McCarthy, which is about Chinese American politics, um, in, in the, especially in the 50s and 60s. I, um, when I was doing the research on Mao McCarthy, I kept stumbling upon mentions of, it, it mentions in State Department papers, mentions in uh, communion newspapers of people who had been in China before uh, 1949, especially before World War II. And, you know, I didn't think anything of it at the time, um, but they, they, you know, they kept popping up. And when I was sort of wrapping up my research and writing for that book, I stumbled upon another article in, uh, in this case, an English language newspaper published by uh, Bill Chang. This is the Chinese American Times. Bill just passed away a few months ago at the age of 103. And he founded the first Chinese American paper in New York that was in English. Uh, and he had actually been, um, he, he attended college at St. John's university in Shanghai. And he mentions this in the article and he mentions, you know, such and such a friend who I studied with at St. John's. And at the time I thought, oh, that's odd, right? You know, you have these Americans who are attending college in China. Maybe I should do an article about St. John's. Um, and then around the same time, um, when, you know, I was stumbling upon these people, I was also teaching my Asian American history course, which I teach every few years at, at Baruch. And one of the things I often teach as a primary source in that class is uh, that essay contest. I think a lot of people who teach in Asian American history use yeah, it. Yeah. It was an essay contest. You know that one, right? Um, it was sponsored by the Ging Hawk Club of New York, a Chinese American women's organization in New York City in 1936. Um, and the essay Subject was: Does my future lie in China or America? And the uh, results, the two winning essays, and a lot of response to them, um, they were published in a second-generation English-language uh, journal called Chinese um, uh, Chinese Digest, which was uh, published in San Francisco before World War II. And I was teaching these these um, essays. And we had this great discussion in the class about them, and I was thinking of a lot about them in conjunction with other stuff I had just taught about Japanese Americans who traveled to Japan before World War II and did these study tours, and some who went to Manchuria as part of the puppet state of Manchukuo, and just all this stuff was bouncing around in my head. I'd just seen that Bill Chang article, and one of my students came up to me afterwards and said, what happened to these people? You know, did they, did they go to China or did they stay in the United States? And I said, well, you know, I don't really know. I'd always assumed, you know, people talked about this a little bit. There's not much literature that I've seen, but that, that most people stayed in America. But I don't know, maybe I'll look around. And over the next few days, I thought, well, why can't I find the answers to this question? And well, maybe it would be an interesting topic. And who do I know, you know, who might have stayed, who might have gone? And I started to do a little research and then it just sort of mushroomed from there. And I, I quickly realized that this was going to be more than an article about St. John's University, um, particularly because I put together a little spreadsheet just on Excel to try to keep track of people that had gone, that I had some kind of documentation. Chinese American citizens who had moved to China to work or to study or to live. And I still have, I'm still maintaining the spreadsheet and I have 1200 names on it right now of people who, about whom I have substantial documentation, but that's the tip of the iceberg. Uh, And so that's how really this, this book started just from this series of questions and ideas and things I was thinking about just sort of pulled me in.
0: That's wonderful. And, and it's uh it actually helps us to maybe uh, start to talk about some of these, the the lives and and careers of these folks. Um, And I want to just kind of, for the benefit of our listeners, mention the book is organized, um, you know, sort of uh, chronologically. Um, There are five chapters in addition to uh, an introduction, a conclusion, and an epilogue. And I want to just sort of um, lay out the the chapter titles real quick. Um, The the first chapter is New Lives in the South, Chinese-American Merchant and Student Immigrants. Chapter two is The Modernizers, U.S. Educated Chinese Americans in China. And then we go to chapter three, which really looks at the 1920s, the Golden Age ends, Chinese Americans and the rise of the anti-imperialist nationalism. And chapter four is about the Nanjing decade, uh, Chinese American immigrants and a nationalist regime, really looking at the 1930s. And then chapter five takes us into the second sign of Japanese war in World War II, entitled Agonizing Choices, the War Against Japan, 1937. To 1945. With that, I wondered if actually we could start by talking about chapter one and chapter two together, because the the, the way that you compare the profiles of these different groups that end up in different places um, in, in China um, in the early part of the 1900s uh, really helps to sort of set up the rest of the story. So perhaps we can start by just um, asking you to, to talk a little bit about the differences between these Chinese American merchant and student immigrants. Um, closer to, to southern China in in Hong Kong, and w- the group that you call the modernizers. Um, what are the similarities and differences between these two groups?
1: Yeah, that's a, a an interesting question to start with because really, I that's the first writing problem I I, I started with. Uh, this was initially one giant chapter in which I was going to move very chronologically forward, and then I realized, you know, I'm writing about two groups of people, two distinct groups of people with different goals, um, different uh, degrees of uh, U.S. education and, uh, you know, really uh, different ideas about what their China would be. So the first chapter deals with people who were U.S. born. And I should I should mention at the outset that One of the complications of writing a book like this is that there was a lot of unlawful emigration from China to the United States in these years. And that creates a little difficulty in trying to figure out how many people from the United States moved to China, how many Chinese Americans. Um, Because when we talk about citizens, there were a lot of different groups of citizens, people who claimed citizenship. um, Although born in China, they were they claimed to derive their citizenship from U.S.s and fathers. Um, and those were people known as, generally known as paper sons, who were um, not all derivative citizens, certainly, but many of them uh, were claiming uh, a relationship to uh, an American citizen that, that they didn't have, right? So almost all the people I look at had pretty well documented, um, they were documented U.S. citizens through birth certificates and other things. And- what I found was that almost all of them, whether modernizers or the people who I call the merchants and students, um, the vast majority were the children of China China born merchants, Chinese merchants living in the United States, which was the only group of people who were um, uh, who were Chinese immigrants who were allowed to uh, bring wives in from China. And so these were uh, the, the, these this group of people they the size of the Chinese American population, citizen population, because of their birth on U.S. soil, starts to slowly grow. And after the turn of the century, it starts to grow more quickly. And what I found was that in starting with the the people who were what I call the students and merchants, these were people who began to consider moving to China before the turn of the 20th century. In the last years of the Qing dynasty, which ended in 1912, because by that point, their parents who had come generally before 1882, but even into the 1890s, you know, these were merchant immigrant strivers, not necessarily wealthy, but they wanted their children to have better lives. And because of the the anti-Chinese movement, Chinese Americans were increasingly blocked out of more and more professions, more and more channels for upward mobility. And so this first, not really huge, but sizable generation of Chinese Americans um, that I placed between about the 1890s and 1910s, their parents increasingly see for them a future interacting with other people of Chinese ancestry and not necessarily in the United States. And because this is before the fall of the Qing dynasty is when this chapter starts, the most logical place to do that was Hong Kong. You know, it was this real center of, um, you know, there are other scholars like Elizabeth Sin, who's written extensively about Hong Kong as one of these central nodes in these overseas Chinese networks that spanned the world. And for a lot of Chinese Americans who decided to emigrate or they decided to send their children to, uh, to China or Hong Kong at this time, Hong Kong was a logical place to go, is a place of social mobility. You did not need access to the traditional Chinese exam system kind of education. And if you had some capital or some education and some English language ability, um, you would have real opportunities. Um, and for people who, were, who had come of age in the United States who had those things in particular, um, this is a place where you could build a business if you had a little capital. And so people who were merchants or people who wanted their children to be able to move in what I call the overseas Chinese world. They sent their children to Hong Kong before the fall of the Qing dynasty to get an education or to establish businesses. And and that was really the group I started with um, because this is even before the Boxer uprising in
0: 1900.
1: So this is a time of tremendous flux in China itself. And then the chapter two, which deals with those I call the modernizers, this really starts after 1901, after the Qing dynasty has is trying to recover from the Boxer uprising, in which the Qing court, through its lot in with the Boxers, had to pay dearly um, because of the foreign governments. Not only foreign, you know, military intervened; they sacked Beijing and they imposed this Boxer Protocol on the on the on the Qing regime. But the Qing government is trying to save itself at this point through reform. And so it institutes these things called the new policies that are really attempts to revamp the government, create a constitutional monarchy, but also build infrastructure, develop a completely new education system. And one of the problems they have in creating the new policies is they don't have really any Western-trained people to implement them besides a handful of Western-educated Chinese. And so for Chinese-Americans who have had a high school education or even a college education in the United States. For them, this is a golden moment. Uh, You know, they can, they can contribute those skills in their Western education. They can go to China and they can enjoy unparalleled careers. just meteoric rises in, in the new policies era.
0: I find, I, I found that section particularly interesting because I, I was reading about some of that, um, some of those trajectories that that you describe uh, in in chapter two, um, and uh, some of them are really remarkable where, you know, people graduate from college and then a couple years later end up on a Supreme Court or running, you know, a ministry. And on one hand, you sort of think to yourself, well, you know, that is, you know, good, good evidence of the opportunities that they see. On the other hand, you know, you might also wonder, you know, how good could they possibly have been at that job, Um, you know, (laughs) in in terms of their contributions, you know, so it it really was, you know, striking. I I wanted to ask maybe um, for you to talk about some of the other kind of um, markers of social difference that may come into play um, with these two groups. And in particular, you pay consistent attention to, to the experiences of uh, of women, um, although more of them start to, uh, immigrate in the 1930s, but if you could maybe speak to their, um, experiences and the second, um, sort of, um, dimension that I, I had thought about in, in um, uh, reading about this group of, of, uh, Chinese American expats, if we can call them that, um. Was the fact that many of them seem to have come from uh, mixed-race families? Um, Certainly, you know Tom Lee, um, whom you mentioned, who some of them, some listeners may know as kind of the mayor of Chinatown in New York. Um, You know, one of his sons uh, appears in in the story in the in the history that you tell, Um, and I'm curious whether or not that might have been a significant um, factor in their experiences. um, You know. That I, and I'm thinking of Emma Tung's work on, um, you mm-hmm. know, multiracial um, um, Asian and white um, uh, individuals um, and, and the fact that maybe Hong Kong uh, was more receptive to this kind of, uh, you know, mixed race um, ancestry and heritage. Um, how did these kinds of um, additional sort of, you know, dimensions of, of, of um, Chinese American identity play a role? Um, in in the story in the early 1900s
1: oh wow that's a I mean, that's a great question it's very complicated i've tried to sort of take it apart a little bit um, so in terms of social markers of difference one of the one of the interesting things i found i mean just sort of talk a little bit about that that the the people I call the modernizers who went to China with a particular aim of using their generally college education or vocational training to sort of build a new China, whether under the Qing dynasty or later the Republic, most of them came from urban backgrounds. Um, the people who are merchants and students came from all over the United States, small towns, large cities alike. Um, the modernizers tended actually to be uh, more likely to come from Christian backgrounds. And the women who are able to emigrate and who wanted to emigrate in the early years before the before the mid twenties, really, and especially the thirties, when a lot of the the um, the kind of uh, prescriptions <laughs> by, on the basis of gender and who could go start to break down because of economic need, a lot of the women were, uh, in particular, were from Chinese Christian backgrounds, and their parents often encouraged them to emigrate with the idea of you know evangelizing China, whether through missionary, straight out missionary church work or through missionary run hospitals or the YMCA, YWCA structure in China and Hong Kong. Um, and the, the question of, um, mixed race people in this was also one that, you know, I addressed and then I took that passage out and then I put it back in. And I, I found that, um, you know, a lot of this reflected the, um, the systems and structures and laws in the United States, as much as um, the reception people got in China. Um, you know, a lot of the people I looked at who were for well, Tom Lee's son is a major character in the book. He's uh, this, this man, Frank Ching and William Lee. I, uh, he becomes, he joins the nationalist party. Really he, the predecessor to that, the Tom Wong Hui, when he's in the United States, he is a fervent disciple of Sun Yat-sen his mother is German American. His father is a Chinese American leader of a tong, quite a notorious one in New York, the Onleyong Tong, um, known as the Mayor of Chinatown, but also, you know, involved in sort of illicit activities and Tammany Hall activities. Um, and Tom Lee's not Christian, but his son becomes Christian. Apparently, this this created some discord between them. Um, but I, I sort of felt like, frankly, in a lot of ways, he seemed to be. I didn't see that his ancestry had much of an impact on his the way he was treated initially. I do wonder if it if it limited his rise within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs after the establishment of the nationalist government, because he remains part of that, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, a diplomat for the nationalists all the way till his death in the early 1950s. Um, in addition, I think one of the more intriguing characters, and one I, I wish I had been able to find more documentation about, although I did find a lot, was um, this man Anthony Lee Fong Alo. Also, uh, he is the son of a, a Chinese father and a Hawaiian mother. I think he kind of offers uh, a clue to how people of mixed ancestry related in in where they came from. In his case, Hawaii, and and when he arrived in China, um, I think because. You know we think of Hawaii as being a sort of a more welcoming place for um a more diverse population, but there was a very fixed hierarchy in Hawaii as far as if you were of Chinese ancestry. You know, the professions were basically closed to you until the 30s at the earliest. Alo studied at Cambridge University, he was a trained lawyer, and yet he struggled to find work in Hawaii. Um, and he wanted to increasingly put his future into service of China. He really gravitated to his father's ancestry. Um, and it's interesting because he had grown up in a Hawaii in which um, Hawaiians were pushed out of government. And this is the time when the United States annexed the islands. I found his his trajectory difficult to follow in terms of any obvious connection to his mixed ancestry. But I think a lot of people who were of mixed ancestry found not necessarily full acceptance, but greater tolerance in China in places that were used to um, a little more complexity, the Pearl River Delta, uh, Hong Kong, where they're increasingly by the 20s and 30s. And Emma Tang's book talks about this, I think, brilliantly about the rise of an identity that uh, you know, is, is assertively mixed race. Um, but the, the meaning of, of that changes over time and it changes with the changing politics in China. Um, and so uh, that's not perhaps the, the clearest answer, but it was something that I puzzled over myself when I was, I was trying to follow the trajectories that people had in China. It was easy to follow some aspects of their identity and how they transformed over time.
0: Yeah, and, and that's actually maybe a great segue to, to uh, jump to chapter three, um, as you talk about the, the sort of changing politics in China. And here, I, I wonder if we can maybe uh, home in on a couple of cases. So chapter three, which um, is uh, w- entitled The Golden Age. And so of course, there's the presumption that as you talked about before, there's kind of a, you know, socially mobile, flexible kind of world in which um, these Chinese Americans in China are operating in and moving around in that that golden age ends. And I wonder if you could maybe talk a little bit then about, and I, I hope I'm not butchering these names, um, Chu Xie Wai um, in 1928, and Nick Char in 1929, these two cases, how did they illustrate the changing politics of citizenship from the angle of Republican China, but also in terms of the racial nationalism of the United States in the 1920s?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I actually don't know if you're butchering the names, honestly, because I I can read them in in you know in the Chinese characters, but my pronunciation is the northern dialect. <laughs> you know, I don't know how they pronounce their names in um, in Cantonese. But um, so you know, just to set this up, when I talk about the golden age, that is the age where people like Olo or Frank Lee were able to rise to great prominence quite quickly, and by the middle of the 1920s. The Nationalist Party, which had been, you know, back on its heels in the late teens, emerges by about 1925 with the the help of uh, Soviet advisors and money. Um, Sun Yat Sen is, um, you know, signs this thing called the Sun Jaffe Accord with uh, uh, a common agent and Soviet representative Adolf Jaffe in Shanghai, and this allows Chinese communists to join the Nationalist Party and it helps bring in Soviet advisors to the nationalists and a lot of money to build a military academy. And at the same time, um, there's a lot of labor organizing and um, anti-imperialist organizing that's happening in Shanghai uh, with the help of the communists. And so the upshot of all this is that for Chinese Americans who are coming into China in the 1910s, in this very fluid environment, where essentially what you have is you have people debating in China about what what does it mean to be Chinese, what is what should ch- a modern Chinese culture look like, and um, you have uh, increasingly a, a Western educated China born um, elite in which Chinese Americans who at least the, the college-educated ones, are able to mix or those who are um, you know, prominent merchants are able to mix and become part of this elite. There's a very fluid moment, and that fluidity starts to evaporate by the mid-1920s as anti-imperialism becomes the leading cause of the nationalists and as there's increasingly a debate about acceptable Chineseness. But the central question um, in Chapter 3 is really citizenship. Um, the nationalists inherited and built upon a uh, concept of of citizenship that the late Qing jurists created. Uh, And they, in 1909, created this nationality law that essentially said that every person with a Chinese father, and I've also seen it with one Chinese parent, but I think the actual law said with every person, wherever born with a Chinese father is a citizen of China. And the Republican governments that followed, they inherited this law, they recognized it, and the nationalists did as well. By 1925, the nationalists control Guang, Guangdong province. Um, they're on the verge of launching what they did in 1926, this um, northern expedition. And they they try to implement this law. And why it matters for the book and for Chinese Americans is that, of course, the nationalists are in control of the province, Guangdong, which is the ancestral province of the vast majority of Chinese Americans. And so Chinese Americans who emigrate to China, they don't go to Shanghai, and and most of them don't go to Shanghai, they go to the South, where they have family, where they have connections, where they have business opportunities. And the issue of their citizenship starts to become a real sticking point, Um, partly because many of them try to play both sides. They try to use their Chinese citizenship when it's convenient. They use their American citizenship when it's convenient. And why American citizenship is particularly convenient is because um, in China in the 20s all the way up to the 40s, because of treaties that were really foisted on China in the 19th century, foreign citizens of certain nations, not all of them, but certainly Britain, France, Holland, the United States. Um, and other powerful nations in Japan enjoyed something called extraterritoriality, Uh, And that means that they are not subject to Chinese law. It doesn't mean they can break laws or murder people with impunity, but it means that they are subject to the laws of their own country. So that if they violate a law in China, and it's also a law, you know, in in their country, they could be arrested for it, but they cannot be tried in a Chinese court and they cannot be held in a Chinese jail. And That's why citizenship matters so much. And so Chinese Americans claim as U.S. citizens, they are subject to American law and they are protected from really arbitrary Chinese law in their minds by extraterritoriality. The Chinese governments um, had objected to this, but in the South, the nationalists really make it a policy to refuse to acknowledge Chinese Americans' U.S. citizenship. And so the central story in Chapter 3 is that in 1925, Sun Yat-sen dies. Um, and there is a struggle, not, not any kind of armed struggle, but there's an ideological struggle within the party that had been moving to the left. It was increasingly radical, increasingly friendly to, um, uh, to communism, but certainly not communist. There is a struggle for who is going to be the leader of the Nationalist Party. And the three main people who are potential leaders, none of them are Chiang Kai shek, by the way, which is the assumption, but none of them are. Um, There's Wang Jingwei, who eventually, during World War II, became the the collaborationist uh, leader of the pro Japan. He was really the puppet leader uh, of the Nanjing government under the Japanese. So he's one of them. The other two are a person who's been forgotten. Hu Hanmin, who's a nationalist conservative. And the third is actually a San Francisco native named Liao Zhengkai, who is uh, very close to Sun and very leftist. Uh, Liao Zhengkai was assassinated a few months after Sun died. And a group of cadets from the uh, Soviet-funded Wampo Academy basically flow into Guangzhou and arrest people that they think are responsible for Liao Zhengkai's assassination and one of the people they arrest is this young chinese american student named uh, chu Xiaowai. he jiao uh, Shihui is his uh, his uh, the mandarin pronunciation he is living with his family but he was born in new york he went to high school in uh, in new york he has a lot of uh, brothers and sisters some half brothers and his half brother was involved in uh, right wing nationalist activism, ran a newspaper, was close to Yat Sen, but is known for being conservative. His brother, his, his half-brother, a his guy named Chu Sugun, gets out of town after Liao Junkai is assassinated, basically disappears. So the Wampo cadets arrest Chu Xiaowai and charge him with everything they would have charged Chu Sugun with. And Chu Xiaowai's brother's Show up at the American embassy, they're also the American consulate, it's in Guangzhou, and they say, You know, we're also American citizens. Our brother has registered as an American citizen. He needs the protection of the American government. He's been arrested and he is not subject to Chinese law. He's, you know, he has American citizenship. Well, the nationalists reject this argument. And after about a month, the Guangzhou U.S. consulate also rejects the argument that Xu Y deserves American protection. Essentially, they had been dealing with cases like this on a lesser basis, not political, but, you know, as things had gotten very, um, basically social order had fallen apart in parts of Hong Chinese Americans were often caught up in this, arrested, shaken down by local officials, kidnapped, whatever. And American consuls had been uh, intervening in these cases for a number of years, and they decided that they were done with it, that these Chinese Americans did not merit protection. And and I I put this in the context of what was happening in the United States at this time, where you have the passage of increasingly racial nationalist legislation to bar immigrants from Asia between 1917 and 1924, and to place strict quotas on immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. So this is a time of growing racial nationalism and uh, xenophobia in the United States, and it's really reflected in State Department policy towards Chinese Americans.
0: That's one of the, I think, real sort of strengths I took away from the book. Of and and you know, perhaps listeners have been uh, able to uh, sense this already that the way that you move between the different political landscapes in in China and the U.S. I mean, having you know, done a a field in in modern Chinese history, I still have trouble sort of following, you know, the warlord period, and then, you know, all all the kind of factions. And I really do appreciate the clarity that you bring um, to the different political landscape that impinge on the lives of these um, Chinese Americans in in China. But I think, you know, moving us forward to, to chapter four about the Nanjing decade in the 1930s, and the Great Depression as sort of the context one of the things that fascinates me is how, in many ways, the Kuomintang uh, or, or um, the nationalist government essentially, you know, creates a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Um, and and um, and you write about how uh, during this particular decade, the earlier suspicions of Chinese Americans as kind of politically flexible and convenient um, um, and and sort of agents of Western cap- uh, imperialism, how how that essentially becomes a self-fulfilling prof- prophecy in terms of how they. Shape the loyalties of these people in the 1930s. So, how does the how does the um, in migration of Chinese Americans to China in the 1930s how does that look different than the earlier decades, the golden age that you talked about um, earlier in our conversation?
1: Um, yeah, well, I've, I should mention. I'm I'm glad I was clear. It's it's difficult. One of the difficulties of writing a book like this for a largely American audience is. Trying to give just enough detail on the Chinese history without getting people sort of really bogged down in what is often, I mean, it, you know, really difficult to follow details. Um, by the 1930s, I think what is clear is there is a single government that controls most of China's heartland, although interestingly, not Guangdong anymore. So there's uh, there's still political fragmentation, but immigration from the U.S. to China really does start to look different in the 30s, um, partly because A lot of the neat distinctions I made in the early part of the book between the modernizers and the student and merchant immigrants, um, it starts to break down a bit. You have a a considerable, really hundreds and probably thousands of people uh, of Chinese ancestry leaving the U.S. for China and Hong Kong in the 1930s because of the Depression, because an already bad economic situation for people of Chinese ancestry, you know, just and demographic discrimination against them on the job market gets about 80 times worse during the depression. Um, at a time when, I mean, it just, it's kind of the height of unfairness just to contemplate it, that you have for the first time a numerically significant second generation uh, of people uh, of Chinese ancestry, uh, both on the mainland and Hawaii. So they just, they come of age at a time when there are just no jobs. Uh, it, do, it doesn't even matter how well educated they are. And so you start to see all kinds of people emigrating to China, who in previous years might not have done so. Uh, people who didn't have a special skill, who had no capital, who had no particular education or trade, but there's no jobs in the United States, so maybe they can find something in China. Um, and you, you know, it's, it's interesting just to look at the sources from the 30s you have. Um, I think my, my favorite are some of the, the female em- immigrants who, whose parents probably 20 years earlier would never have left their daughters Moved to China, but now in the 1930s, are depending on their daughter's earnings in China. Um, and one of the one of the families I look at um, uh, are the Gu sisters, who go to Shanghai and they establish in the international settlement, which was a uh, a foreign controlled and policed area of Shanghai. They establish a beauty salon, and they quickly find themselves. It's called the American Beauty Salon, you know pretty basic. And they quickly find themselves in competition with two or three other uh, people who are also from Hawaii, other women who have established beauty salons, right? These are not, these are working class women who come to work in Shanghai because the the depression hits Shanghai and other parts of China quite a bit later than it does the United States. Uh, People who would never have considered working in Hong Kong, who would have considered themselves patriotic Chinese Uh, who would never, you know, work in a British colony. Um, But in the 30s, a lot of modernizers of of the previous, you know, people who would have been modernizers 20 years earlier, uh, people with American educations, they moved to Hong Kong and work for, uh, you know, they they work in infrastructure, they work as lawyers and doctors. And you just have people working in um, all kinds of different Jobs, You know, I found people who were working as jazz musicians and singers, movies, actors, and um, were running restaurants in Shanghai, all Chinese-Americans, some of them well-educated, many of them not. Um, And in addition, um, a a huge number, more than several hundred, I think, Chinese-American high school graduates who enroll in universities in China, many of them universities like St. John's University, which I mentioned a while back where the medium of instruction is English. And for that reason, have, are really attractive to the business classes of China's cities, especially Shanghai. Um, and a lot of these these high school graduates, they go to China to, to build connections to, to the business classes of Shanghai, thinking that they'll enter that profession in China because there's nothing for them in America. So you just have people of all walks of life, men and women alike, working in China, now, or when they can find work, and struggling, really, but doing better, probably in China, at least until 34 or 35, than they would have been able to in the United States.
0: One of the sort of insights that I want to sort of call out for for listeners is is the idea that, and you write about this in, in, in chapter four, um, of the idea of these Chinese Americans who settle in Shanghai in the 1930s, um, as not border crossers, but actually border dwellers. And I think that's that's one way to maybe trace the change over time, um, you know, for, for the opportunities that these folks uh, find and then don't find. Um,
1: And also, you know, you'd asked about the nationalist party's relationship to these, these people. And I think that's a good example because these were very culturally Americanized immigrants who arrive in, in China at a moment when the nationalist regime is increasingly narrowing the borders of acceptable Chinese-ness, especially with this, this movement called the new life movement that was supposed to build a sort of a disciplined uh, kind of uh, Spartan Chinese citizenry. Uh, You know, this is the brainchild of Chiang Kai-shek and, and his wife. Um, And, you know, Chiang was very influenced by and and admiring of German fascism. uh, The idea that the Chinese people needed to, um, you know, sort of to be more disciplined, but expressed in this very hygienic modernity kind of way where there were about a dozen rules on buttoning up your shirt and not spitting in the street. But part of the new life movement was a very anti-Western, uh, trend in it, which was, you know, that, that Western decadence is undermining the Chinese spirit and must be rooted out. Um, you shouldn't go to do, you shouldn't go to Western movies. You shouldn't dance in Western nightclubs. You shouldn't listen to foreign music. Um, you know and, and the problem is for a lot of the Chinese Americans who come to study at St. John's or who go to work. Um, you know, the Goose Sisters are a good example. They, they're the big specialty at their beauty salon is permanent waves, which doesn't sound like a big deal. But strangely, the New Life Movement one of the big rules of the New Life Movement was permanent waves are damaging to women and they should not be done. Women should not get their hair curled, they can't wear these dresses, they shouldn't dress. Into revealing a fashion, and so the sort of values and habits of Chinese American immigrants are really increasingly crashing into acceptable Chineseness as the nationalists lay it down. And the nationalists don't really offer any way for Chinese Americans to contribute. Uh, you know, they, they used to be able to get jobs in government agencies; their skills were valued, and increasingly they're not. Right, so they are border dwellers because there's they're really, I don't know, I found that so many of them by the 1930s, the greatest opportunities for them and the place where they feel most at home is sort of in between um, the, you know, in these in between spaces, whether Hong Kong or the foreign settlements, which were actually, you know, foreign controlled spaces, the French concession, the international settlement of Shanghai, these these places, or even in S- South China, which was not, it was under warlord control in the, in the thirties. It was these places where the Chinese government could not actually exercise power over them, but they were in a Chinese context, you know? So they had left the United States with all its racial restrictions, but they were not putting themselves under Chinese nationalist control either. they were sort of in this, you know, on the border of those places, but that was really the one place that was where they could fill at home.
0: Which which is a great way of pivoting us to the last chapter because as war comes, right, the, the already sort of tenuous, narrow spaces where they're trying to make a life closed it feels like even further, which sets up some of these what you call agonizing choices, which are the, the, the which is the title of, of chapter five. Um and, and I was particularly fascinated, I had to say, with the Chinese American collaborators. Um, and you you talk about Uh, Russell Chen, who's born in Boston and a second generation U.S. citizen who had immigrated to China in the early 1920s, you know, is beaten um, when he uh, comes out of the New Asia Hotel, um, where uh, the the sort of collaborationist um, uh, government had had been essentially ensconced for fear of running into Chiang Kai-shek's agents. Um, And what's fascinating to me is how, you know, they're already living these multiple kind of layers of identity. And they add a third one, which is kind of, you know, this sort of Passing loyalty, or for some, not so passing loyalty, to to Japan. Um, so, what what is what is Chinese American um, uh, sort of experience in in China look like during the nineteen forties? As we get into the period of the Second Sino Japanese War and World War Two, I,
1: I think like you, I I was really fascinated by Chinese Americans who chose to collaborate with the Japanese and you know, that means different things at different times. And just the kinds of choices that all Chinese Americans had to make were really um, excruciating to even research, painful, um, because, you know, the, as you, as you mentioned, one of the, really the themes of the book is that there's a moment in the teen's Really, the about 1901 to 1920, 21, where there there's this golden age of these opportunities, and after that point, those spaces and the opportunities increasingly shrink, um, and they begin to disappear when the Japanese invade. And for a lot of Chinese Americans, it's a series of choices that are they have to make about loyalty about loyalty to China as a sort of abstract idea, but loyalty to the nationalists and do the, uh, do the nationalists represent China. And to many, many of these people, it seems that not, that, you know, the, they decided that their China was something else. Um, and so, and when the Japanese, uh, well, really when the Japanese and Chinese go to war in Shanghai in 1937, the, um, you start to see people making those choices, but also not the same kinds of choices that the substantially sized white American population of Shanghai has to make. Because of course America's immigration laws prevent people from like Russell Chun actually from, if he would wished to return to the United States in safety in 1937, uh, he could not have done so uh, without leaving his wife behind because as a, as a Chinese citizen, she was not, able to follow him to the United States. The United States prevented immigration law was very racialized and prevented um, uh, China born wives from, you know, living with their husbands permanently in the United States, Uh, uh, you know, and there were tweaks to that law, but there were all kinds of moments like that, where uh, the U S government was making loans to its white citizens to leave Shanghai. But if a Chinese American wanted to bring his or her family, if those people uh, were not eligible to come in under U.S. immigration law, then even the the head of household could not, if they were American citizen, could not get a loan. And just all these sort of um, inequalities that were already built in the immigration law they visited on desperate people trying to get out. Um, and that really, I think, did shape how uh, people made choices, that some people who were able to fled, uh, who did not have dependents, um, they left in 1937, 1938, um, and some of them strangely returned when peace came to Shanghai, an uneasy peace where the Japanese occupied all but the internationally held areas. A good number of Chinese Americans who had, who had fled to the United States end up going back to Shanghai because in the US they can't find work. Um, so, you know, that the, then there's sort of the, um, the depression and the inequality and in that again manifest themselves. But there are people like Russell Chen, I, I just found. I mean, I remember when I discovered that he was a collaborator and it it does sort of open up these multiple layers of identity because he's known by one name in the foreign community. He's a member of all kinds of foreign dominated clubs, the New York University Club, the YMCA, the Y Men's Club. Um, You know, I remember reading about some meeting where he introduces Moxie Soda, the sort of New England product to uh, to people at the American University Club. But a year later, you know, through his wife, he is he's married into this family that um, flirted with or openly collaborated with the Japanese. And I think that was his path. He was also friends with um, some other people who were collaborators. And he throws his lot in with the um, the with at least two governments. The, the first collaborationist government and then the Wang Jingwei regime. But I think very few people realized it was him because he operated under his Chinese name and the stories about him were about Chen Zetong, not about Russell Chen. Uh, he just sort of disappears from foreign life in Shanghai. But, you know, at the the very end of the book, I point out that nobody ever figured it out and he resumed life under the name Russell Chen in Hong Kong after the war, right? There were other people who, whose collaboration was more obvious and more well well-known. Um, and the choices they made were interesting too. I, I uh, I write a bit about the Moy family, um, and they made many different choices. Um, Herbert Moy, the youngest son of this New York family, he indirectly collaborates. He becomes a broadcaster for a German-owned radio station, a Nazi-owned radio station in Shanghai. Um, his His brother, Ernest, flees to Chongqing, where he works with the nationalist government during the war his sister-in-law ernest's wife ruth uh, opens their couple's home which is in the french concession to us agents during the war so she is running a us intelligence agent safe house um, herbert's older sister alice or older sister alice and her husband alfred were apparently sort of you know kind of soft collaborating with the japanese being fairly friendly in order to survive in occupied china and they had made the choice to go to flee to New York, but they, they returned for economic reasons, I think. And it's really the spectrum of the choices that Chinese Americans did and could make. You know, Do you, do you follow the nationalist government um, into the far inland of southwest China? Do you return to the United States? Do you stick it out and hope the Japanese don't take over the foreign-controlled areas, but after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese do take over the foreign-controlled areas? And then if that happens, how do you survive? And, and to what degree are you willing to collaborate? And are you a true believer in that collaboration? So there's just all these different choices. And, uh, you know, people's personal histories, I think, with racism in America, with the US government in China, with the nationalist government in China, and with the Shanghai community, I think, are, are what really determine the choices they ultimately make.
0: Yeah, thank you for that beautiful summary. I, I have to say, you know, perhaps. In looking at the overall arc of the book, some might find it, oh, I don't know, um, a little depressing, you know, of the, the sort of closing <laughs> off of the golden age into, you know, a set of agonizing choices. But I think, you know, in, in hearing you talk about the spe- spectrum of, of choices and decisions that people make, some for economic survival, some out of, you know, real, you know, solid political allegiance, um, you know, that, that it does provide a sense of um, agency in which people kind of do the best they can within worlds that have been made impossible for them. Um, and so um, I, I wish we had more time to, to dig into some of these details, because the way that you bring these Chinese Americans um, in in China up to life in this book is, is just so rich. Um, and I, I hope uh, folks will have a chance to read the book uh, in detail for themselves. Um, as we start to, to wrap up, Charlotte, um, and before we let you go, I wanted to give you a chance to maybe tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Uh, I know the book is basically freshly out, so perhaps I, I hope you're getting a chance to take a break, but uh, what projects are on the horizon for you?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I, I've i been thinking a lot about that recently because I, uh, if I were honest, I, I mean, I this project, um, American Exodus, I think was the most engrossing project I've ever worked on. I just, it just really sucked me in. I I would be happy to continue sort of swimming in this world. Um, and I think increasingly I am sort of looking a little bit more at, um, international U S in the world, transnational, you know, my, my, my own career and scholarship. Arc has been in that direction, so I'm, you know, I, I'm sort of torn between two uh, projects that I think I will probably end up doing both at some variation at some point. One, I, I'm really interested in, in just sort of examining um, the American community in China at at the time, you know, in the in the late Qing and early Republican era in general, not just Chinese Americans, but uh, you know, just the kind of diversity of small businesses and and you know, prostitutes and missionaries. And there's been a lot of focus on the missionaries, not as much on sort of the ordinary people who who try to build lives abroad, you know, just a whole number of people who retired to China because it was cheap to do so. You know, it's sort of fascinating. I, I don't know if there's enough there to sort of build a project on, but it'll be fun to find out. And I think the other one is, um, is, you know, to, to continue looking at what I Call in the book The Overseas Chinese World in Pre War Asia, especially pre war China and Hong Kong. I, I think it's just so interesting the idea of, you know, I talk a little bit about the, I think you might call it the institutional infrastructure of overseas Chinese life in China, especially South China. In, you know, I talk about Lingnan University, which at the time was Canton Christian College. And, um, you know, it has students from around the world. It has overseas Chinese school attached to it. And and parents of uh, ethnic Chinese parents from around the world send their children to study here, but they study in all kinds of different languages. And, um, and it's, it seems sort of, you know, it's distinct from sort of ordinary China. It's just almost this, this place that's a part. And I, I kind of like to continue investigating that. Although I have no idea how. I, just, I have to admit, the book did come out like three months ago, so I, I should probably take a breather and spend more time with my family and that sort of thing. But these, these the kinds of, of questions, I, I'm not really settled. I, I really would like to kind of dive back and, and look more at them.
0: Well, I love that. And as somebody who's also interested in kind of the intersection between, you know, U.S. and the World Scholarship and Asian American History, I think it, it only adds more to, to each of those fields uh, by, by expanding the way that we think about the international dimensions of Asian experiences in the New United States and, and in you know places like an overseas Chinese world. So, um, Charlotte, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. It was really a, a pleasure to get to talk to you about American Exodus. Um, thank you so much.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Ian.
0: That was my conversation with Charlotte Brooks, author of American Exodus, Second Generation Chinese Americans in China. 1901 to 1949, published in 2019 by the University of California Press. My name is Ian Shin, and this is New Books and Asian American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.